Under the Stark Law, hospitals can financially induce physicians. How, you ask? Well, listen to part one of Physician Recruiting, and I will tell you how. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. Well, today I'm going to dive into physician recruiting. And to start off, I want to tell you a story about when I was first in-house. So I was sitting at my desk one day, and a couple of physicians came into my office, and they said that they were there to receive the standard, and I'll put that in air quotes, the standard physician recruitment package offered by the hospital. And I looked at them and said, okay, who are you? And they introduced themselves, and they told me what specialty they were practicing in. And I said, well, how long have you been in this area practicing in this specialty? And they said, well, we've been in the area for about six months. But the practice group that we joined said that the hospital always gives out a standard recruitment package of X dollars. And they wanted to receive their recruitment uh, incentive compensation. And I had to explain to them that although it is permissible for a hospital to financially induce a physician to relocate their medical practice and provide some type of uh, loan or payment for the moving of their medical practice, there had to be consideration that was negotiated and tied to the, the relocation of that physician practice, that there was no such thing as a hospital, quote, standard recruitment package. So in that case, obviously, the two physicians were very upset. They were very upset at the hospital. They were upset with me personally because I was the bearer of bad news. But most importantly, I pointed them back to their practice group. And I said, well, if your practice group promised this, then it's really up to your practice group to pay. And it's not up to the hospital to pay unless we actually had a signed written contract with you individually in order to provide these recruitment incentives. So that's just a tale of some people in the industry not fully understanding or appreciating what can occur with respect to physician recruitment incentives. And I think when I first got into healthcare, I was just amazed that with all the regulatory requirements about not inducing physicians to refer or to pay for services above fair market value and the like, 
that the government permits hospitals to provide financial inducements just for the fact of relocating. So, uh, and I'll give you another example before I get into the specific requirements under the recruitment exception. One time that we did uh, negotiate a recruitment package, and as part of the recruitment package uh, to the physician, we also employed the physician as a W-2 employee. And at that time, I was taking all of the physician financial arrangements to the board for approval, and I indicated to the board chairman that we have to have two separate votes on this transaction, and I'll call this Dr. Dr. Smith. And the board chairman said, well, this is just a recruitment of a doctor, and we're, it's just one big financial package that we're providing to this doctor. And I had to explain to the doctor that the answer is no, this is not just one package that we're providing because we're providing specific financial inducements for that physician to relocate. So let's assume that we're giving a physician a $100,000 forgivable loan. And then in addition, we are employing the physician at fair market value for the physician's patient care services. Those are two separate transactions under two separate exceptions under the Stark Law. And so that $100,000 forgivable loan, let's say we're going to forgive it over a two-year period. Ideally, when I do fair market value reviews, I like to incorporate the $50,000 forgiven each year into the W-2 employee's total cash compensation. But from a regulatory perspective, I can exclude that $100,000 from the employment exception under the Stark Law because that $100,000 would fit squarely within the physician recruitment exception. So it's like I have two buckets out there, and if I can throw dollars into one bucket, the physician recruitment bucket, and then I throw the W-2 income for the physician's direct patient care services into a separate bucket, that's the employment bucket, under a Stark Law analysis, then those are two separate, distinct financial transactions covered by two separate and distinct Stark Law exceptions. Now, from an IRS perspective, when the physician receives their uh, their their W two or at the end of the year, uh, then the recruitment package will be on their W two. But uh, for Stark Law compliance, they would have to be separate. So when I bifurcated the approval and we were complete with the recruitment incentives, I stopped the board and I said, okay, we are using tax-exempt dollars to financially induce this physician to relocate to this service area. And if the physician recruits, then the $100,000 that we're paying is successful. And we do not and should not expect any referrals from that physician. The physician has to become a member of our medical staff, but the $100,000 is not tied to the physician's direct patient care services, which took a while for me to fully explain that to the board. So the board was saying, well, why are we paying $100,000 if it is possible that the physician could relocate and then refer all of their patients to the competitor. Well, that's the reason why we have separate exceptions under the Stark Law. So now I'm going to get into the specific requirements under the Stark Law Physician Recruitment Exception, and I'll try to mix and mingle in 
my analysis under the anti-kickback statute, because under the anti-kickback statute, there's also a safe harbor called the practitioner recruitment safe harbor. And then in part two of this physician recruitment episodes, I'll go more into cases and the operational and challenges that uh, hospitals face uh, when they are trying to abide by the uh, physician recruitment exception and the practitioner recruitment safe harbor under the anti-kickback statute. So as I have discussed previously, the Stark Law is a very definitionally driven statute. And the recruitment exception is no exception to that general rule. So there are a lot of definitions that need to be complied with as you're analyzing physician recruitment in order to make sure that all the dollars that are tied to that physician recruitment arrangement will fit within the exception. So first off, the physician recruitment exception applies to hospitals. And that also includes rural hospitals. And later on, when I talk a little bit more about uh, the, the various requirements, I'll also talk about its application to FQHCs, federally qualified health centers, or rural health clinics known as RHCs. So it's limited only to hospitals and the FQHCs and RHCs, and it's not applicable to any other DHS entity like a laboratory or a home health agency. So it's only tied to hospitals. And the recruitment arrangement, the terms and conditions of the recruitment arrangement have to be set out in writing and signed by both parties. At this point, I'm just talking about the recruiting hospital and the recruited physician. I'm not talking about whether or not that physician is going to become a member of another group practice within the service area. So at this point, I'm just limiting only to the financial remuneration or incentives going directly to the recruited physician. So it has to be in writing. And the arrangement cannot be conditioned on the recruited physician's referrals of patients uh, to the hospital. However, the physician is required to become a member of the medical staff of the recruiting hospital. The amount of the compensation or the financial inducement cannot be determined in any, any manner that takes into account the volume or value of the actual or anticipated referrals. That's sort of a common condition in most of the Stark Law exceptions. But here, you need to make sure that, that if we're employing, let's say, it, it's a hematology oncologists. Uh, so what we don't want to do is we don't want to give, by way of example, $100,000 forgivable loan to one uh, oncologist that we believe will be a higher referring source uh, versus $75,000 to an oncologist that we're recruiting that may be anticipated to be a lower referring source. Now, as I talk about that, it cannot be tied to the volume or value of referrals. There is no, and this may come also as a shock to a lot of listeners who are not familiar with this exception, there is no fair market value requirement and there is no commercial reasonableness requirement. Now, for you tax-exempt hospitals, there are requirements under the IRS or tax-exempt principles that do get into the reasonableness of the inducement or the financial incentive. 
Next, the physician has to relocate their medical practice to, and this is one of those big definitions, the geographic area served by the hospital. And I think in previous episodes, I kind of uh, talked about this definition because uh, I, I gave this definition at one presentation full of a bunch of doctors and the doctors almost threw me out of the room. They said that the government just can't be that prescriptive. Well, they are. Well, the geographic areas served by the hospital is not what the hospital considers to be its service area. So this is a legally defined geographic area and it's the lowest number of contiguous zip codes from which the hospital draws at least 75% of its inpatients. So you look at all of the contiguous zip codes and determine the lowest number of contiguous zip codes from which the hospital draws at least 75% of its inpatients, and that is the geographic area served by the hospital. And that is the area, the defined area in which the physician who's being recruited has to set up their medical practice after they're recruited. And there are a few clarifications to that general rule, and one is if the hospital has fewer than 75% of contiguous zip codes, then it will be all of the contiguous zip codes uh, from which the hospital draws its inpatients. So it could be something less than 75%. Now, you also can have, and this was actually a question that was posed in one of the regulations, you can have what we call the donut hole, that you have contiguous zip codes, but within all of these continuous zip codes is one zip code from which the hospital draws zero of their inpatients. And that donut hole would be captured in this contiguous zip code analysis. And a special rule for rural hospitals, uh, so the rural hospital can actually extend their geographic area served by the hospital to 90% instead of 75%, in effect making the geographic area larger uh, for hopes of expanding the territory to which rural hospitals can actually have a physician relocate their medical practice to. Now, the emphasis under this exception is the physician actually relocating their medical practice. And the physician will be deemed to have relocated their medical practice if they move their medical practice at least 25 miles from outside of the geographic area into the geographic area served by the hospitals. That's a 25% rule. Or if they move their medical practice into the geographic area served by the hospital, and maybe that relocation is less than 25 miles, but then the physician who's being recruited has to derive at least 75% of its revenue from new patients. So it could be less than 25 miles, but then the 75% test would have to kick in and that new patient revenue would have to constitute 75% of the revenue coming from that recruited physician's practice. And there are certain exceptions for physicians who do not need to relocate. So if you have a resident physician and or a physician who's been in practice for less than one year, that physician does not need to relocate. And for physicians who actually are working for the following three agencies, as long as they were full-time for at least two years immediately prior to the recruitment, they do not have to relocate. And those are physicians who provide uh, services on a full-time basis to the Federal or State Bureau of Prisons, 
the Department of Defense or Department of Veteran Affairs or a facility of the Indian Health Service. And for all of this, you can actually apply to CMS for advisory opinion for exceptions if you believe that a special exception should be made for a particular physician. And now I'm going to turn to the, which is very prevalent, when the recruited physician joins another practice. So sometimes a physician who's being recruited by a hospital will become an employee of the hospital. And as I indicated, you have two financial arrangements going on, possibly a recruitment arrangement and a separate and distinct employment arrangement for which you have to meet you know, the two separate exceptions under the Stark Law. Or you can just disregard the recruitment exception and put all of the dollars into the recruit or the employment exception and evaluate the total package under the employment exception under the Stark Law. Uh, but again, there's just an ability to kind of exclude those dollars from a fair market value analysis if you can. So if the physician joins another practice and any of the recruitment dollars are paid to that group practice like an income guarantee, then the group practice has to sign the recruitment agreement. So now it becomes a three-way contract between the hospital, the recruited physician, and the group practice. Now, if the physician was going to receive a forgivable loan, by way of example, $100,000 forgivable loan forgiven over a three-year period if the physician remains in the service area for the three years, but there's no income guarantee, even if that physician joins a group practice within the service area, the group practice does not need to sign the agreement. It's only if dollars are actually flowing from the hospital to the group practice in which the physician is joining. And a lot of times it's advantageous, obviously, to have a recruited physician join an existing practice uh, for continuity, for building of the practice, and obviously they know the, the patients in the service area. Now, if any part of the recruitment incentive, like this is going to be a forgivable loan, then the actual cost and expenses have to be passed on to the recruited physician. And if it's an income guarantee, then the expenses that are accounted for by the group practice can only be the additional incremental costs associated with the recruited physician. So I'll give you a couple of examples here. And this is the major part and when in part two of physician recruitment I'll, I'll walk through some of the settlements that have occurred in advisory opinions but this is the major issue that uh, that is involved in the recruitment exception so if the physician joins a group practice but that group practice does not lease any more space then no portion of their space expense can be applied Likewise, if through the recruitment of this physician employment by the, of this physician by the group practice, no additional nursing staff is hired, then no nursing staff costs can be accounted for in that income guarantee. 
So it's, it's critically important if you do any form of income guarantee that it's only the actual incremental costs that are associated with that recruited physician. And I do a couple of things with my clients. I make the group practice sign an attestation each month, and then usually with the recruitment agreement, I attach a form that needs to be filled out every single month with the allocation of the expenses. And even when we do a pro forma of the expenses, so we know generally what type of incremental expenses are going to occur. Her. And then every month when the, the group practice provides the expenses, then there is an attestation by that group practice attesting that all of the expenses are incremental. Now, there is an exception if, it, if the uh, practice is in a rural sell- setting or in a HIPSA, uh, and that is that you can either do the actual additional incremental costs or you can allocate the cost based upon the lower of a per capita or you know per physician uh, allocation. So if you have five physicians in that group practice, then divide all the expenses by five or twenty percent. Or the second test there would be uh, or twenty percent. So it's a lower of. So if the group practice is larger than five, then it, it would have to be the per capita. But if if it is less than five, then it would have to be 20%. The group will need to maintain the records for at least six years. And again, the, uh, the amount of the compensation paid through the group cannot be determined based upon any manner that takes into account the volume or value of referrals, either from the recruited physician or any physician in that group practice. And the group practice cannot place any unreasonable practice restrictions on the physician. So the question would become, well, what is reasonable? Well, uh, reasonable restrictions would be like restrictions on moonlighting, prohibitions on soliciting patients or employees, uh, requiring that the recruited physician treat Medicare and indigent patients, requiring that the recruited physician not use any confidential or proprietary information from the practice, requiring the recruited physician to repay any losses that are experienced, or requiring the recruited physician to pay a predetermined amount of reasonable damages if the physician leaves. And in part two, I'll talk a little bit about the uh, practice restrictions, uh, geographic and time restrictions. And as I indicated previously, that the recruitment exception can apply to federally qualified health centers and rural health clinics, FQHCs and RHCs. And for FQHCs and RHCs, you can apply the 90% test, just like with rural hospitals. Uh, So that can make the geographic area larger uh, than the 75% test. So I have reached my limit of time for part one of the recruitment exception. And so I'll go into the Captain Integrity Punch Points and just please make sure that you do listen to part two because part two I'll be going through the anti-kickback statute as well as settlements and uh, advisory opinions. So Captain Integrity Punch Point one is study and apply the strict definitions, especially the geographic area served by the hospital. Captain Integrity punch point number two is physicians always have to sign the agreement. 
And the group practice has to sign the agreement only if recruitment dollars are being passed through the group practice by the hospital. And punch point number three, and this is a huge one, that there is no fair market value or commercial reasonableness requirement that is specifically stated in the physician recruitment exception under the Stark Law. However, if, as I said previously, if you are part of a tax-exempt hospital, there are IRS restrictions, and one of the biggest cases through the IRS was the Herman Hospital Settlement, and I'll talk a little bit about that in part number two. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.